and welcome back to a brand new episode of Just Thought You'd Like to Know podcast. I'm your host, Akil Balagopal, and each episode I'll be bringing you the most random conversations with different guests as they share facts and opinions on the topic. So this week I'm joined by award-winning lawyer, businesswoman and author, Ms. Richard Setti. Having done it all, Richard joins us today as she shares her journey and rise to the top and will share her advice on succeeding in what are predominantly male-dominated fields. So after qualifying as a solicitor in 1990, four years later, Ritty set up her own high street practice known as the Sethi Partnership Solicitors, which is well known in West London and enjoys an excellent reputation with clients and community. So without further ado, um, welcome to the show, Ritty, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And uh, thank you, Akil. This is uh, hopefully going to be inspirational to, for, for the next generation of lawyers, business people, generally um so yes here we are and you're free to ask me any questions you want perfect thank you so yeah i thought we'd go for a q a style um format but of course um you know just to get a bit um a bit more about you to start with um can you share with our listeners you know where it all started for you all those years ago back in ilford um and to where you came now (laughs) yeah a naive naive girl who grew up in ilford i went to uh, ilford county uh, girls grammar school so and from there um, I did my A-levels which were actually f- uh, physics chemistry biology and English and no surprise it was with the intention of doing something in medicine mm. um, but realized at the last minute that wasn't going to be my calling and it was and my calling really was to do something um, different for I mean we're talking about 1980 so for me to be uh, to go into law was was um, breaking the mold from my family and also my parents aspirations so it was a bit of a rebel move at the time because my my parents didn't approve mm. um, but uh, luckily I got a place at Bristol um, and one of the concerns you know all those years ago was oh it's you know law is a, is a difficult uh, degree to have it's, um, it's and it's six years before you qualify because at that time you did a three-year LLB degree and then you did um, at, at what was called the Law Society Finals, which has now become the LPC and I believe it's changed name again. But that was a very intense one year. Um, so you did all the subjects and then in one week you sat your exams from Wednesday to Wednesday. And people who have done that one week of exams continuous, so you'd have your um, crime exam three hours in the morning and then in the afternoon you'd have three hours of family law exams so it was continuous like that for a week and there was a lot of people who got a nervous breakdown after this one week of solid exams so um, I think they decided to change uh, the way they examined lawyers um, over time however I, I did the law society final exams which were a year and then it was a two-year articles which were now called the the training contract so um, six years for my parents was a long time, and especially being an Indian girl in a very traditional and conservative household. Um, however, once I got a place at Bristol, I loved it. I loved, I just loved law. Um, fell in love with the subject and I couldn't get enough of it, especially in uh, criminal defense law. So in my summers, I'd go, I'd, live in Ilford, but go to what was then called Southall Rights Movement, which was basically um, like a refuge center for domestic violence. And there was one summer 
when I was working, there was a voluntary work. I mean, it was just really to understand how the law was put into practice. Um, and there weren't so many interns. Now you hear about a lot about interns. Then it was basically just doing voluntary work as and when, where you could get it. Um, so I used to work in the summers there. And there was one time I, I listened to people's stories and went, had to go and, def, um, go and sit behind counsel and take notes on a criminal matter. And it was a drug importation case. And it was then that I decided that this was what I want to do. I want to be a criminal defense lawyer. So um, uh, after I finished my LSF, Law Society Finals, um, my training contract was in a firm in Ilford, but it was so boring. It was convincing. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I realized that, you know, it's great because you need convincers and they are really the bread and butter of high street practices. Um, but it wasn't what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. So, uh, and early on, when we did uh, our training contracts uh, or articles, as they were called, you actually, you were trained in all subjects. There wasn't the six, six months here and a si mm. seat there. It was basically a general practice. Um, and by the end of it, you knew a bit about everything and master of nothing. Um, but, but it gives a, it's a good grounding to be a lawyer. Um, so after that, I, tr I then trained uh, in a firm. I then got married, I should say, and then moved to Harrow and carried on my articles in a firm in Harrow. Um, and then the day I qualified, the, around that time, there was the, the, the um, uh, what was it called? The, I've forgotten the word. When, um, uh, Gosh, I've forgotten the word. Recession. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some of my repossessions, that's all I could think of. But there was a recession. And um, uh, interest rates had shot up. I mean, you're talking about interest rates now. We talk about them at mm. 0.5, you know, 1%. It had, it had actually gone off the, off the radar, off the scale. It was at 15% was what the banks were charging oh, wow. uh, yeah. for mortgages. Can you imagine that now? I mean, you know, this. <laughs> it's unheard of but it, it the interest rates had gone off the scale so hence there were more repossessions and hence there was a recession so um on the day i qualified i finished my training contract and the principal at the firm came to my office uh, just a little office in pinna on uh, pinna high street mm. and he said um i know you you love doing criminal law and now there's this all this you know downturn in the property market why don't you start doing police station work, which was basically legal aid going mm. out to police stations and um, courts. Um, so I started my own department in crime and it did, it flourished because mm. of all that, what was generally the economy, I was just lucky uh, to be where I was at the time. So I became a partner after, on the day of qualifications, I was never an assistant solicitor. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, which was a real sort of, you know, a rise quite quickly. And then two years later, uh, the same partner uh, offered me equity in the practice. And that's because crime had really taken off and the legal aid um, was funding all, all of this. And we were doing so well. Um, and then I bought into the practice, basically 25% of a practice in Harrow. Um, only, only what happened, and I've written about this in my book, 
um, two years later, well, just under a year, I realized the senior partner was unable to conduct um, legal work. He had all sorts of issues. And um, we had a third partner who died on the 13th of May, uh, 1994. Mm. And that's when I realized I really needed to cut my ties and cut my losses and, and move from this practice. So I set up SETI Partnerships Listers on the 23rd of May, 1994. Um, basically, within a couple of weeks of my one of my partners passing away. And we and then I set up the practice and I took with me just one receptionist. Um, mm. We set up shopping in East Coast and uh, I had one receptionist and I was doing all the legal work, running to this police station in the middle of the night, duty solicitors. Uh, I was on the duty solicitor rotor scheme, mm. which meant, uh, you know, you could get called at any time of the night and, and you're on a rotor. And at that time you were doing like 12 hour, no, sorry, 24 hour rotors. So you'd start at, at nine in the morning for say a police station and finish the next day at nine in the morning. Um, so this was being done continuously at, uh, at Uxbridge Magistrates, Uxbridge Court, Watford, Brent, Harrow, so all the, all the surrounding courts and police stations near me. So I was, I was getting quite known in these areas because I was quite a workaholic. Bearing in mm. mind, I'd, and if I tell you the timelines, so in 1990, when I qualified as a solicitor, in 91, I had my son, Navinash. In 92, I became a, an equity partner. In mm. 93... I had my daughter <laughs> and 94, I set up the practice, SEPI partnership. So it was all within five years. Yeah. Um, a very quick turnaround, you know, considering yeah. the circumstance at the time as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and, you know, we were, so one of my closest police stations was, um, he, I was Heathrow, well, Oxbridge and Heathrow comes hmm. under that. And Heathrow have a lot of drug importation cases. So, I was on duty during the night. You'd know for sure there'll be a drug importation case coming in. Mm. And you'd know for sure that you'd be up all night, you know, at uh, the air side uh, Heathrow. They've got police station, uh, the police stations on the air side area. Um, and, and that would be your whole night. And in the morning, you'd have, still have to get up and go to Oxbridge Magistrates Court and apply for bail or you know, there'll be a bail application. Inevitably, bail would be refused. Mm. So, so yeah, the, this was how I think the first first ten years of my practice ran. Yeah, um, yeah, and so, also we then uh, so the criminal department was doing very well, and then I was also lucky in a way. I mean, whether you call it luck or whatever, being on the road to duties, I'd also. Um, got recommended by people to defend on murders. Mm. So I had normally in a legal career, um, especially legal aid, you would be lucky as a, as a defense lawyer to even have defend one murder case on, on you know, going to the police station and uh, from day one from the actual day of the incident. Um, I was lucky because every time I was on duty, there would be a murder case and I'd be defending them. So I had, I was defending at least one a year mm. um, for the first, I'd say about four or five years. 
and um, we managed to challenge the law on, on some of them. I mean, one of the ones we did challenge the law was on the um, case of, you know, there's a provocation uh, and how a, a lady or a woman, and it's a case of the Kiran Aluwalia case, where, you know, after years of abuse from her husband, she then one day decides that I've had enough mm. um, and then um, kills him or murders him. And this, the courts recognize was a burning bed syndrome that, you know, it's been for years that this torment's been going, going on. So it can't, it wouldn't be murder, it would be manslaughter. Mm. Um, so we use that case in a, to, uh, to apply to a man who had been a servant uh, for a woman in West London and the same thing happened he'd been abused for many years and then one day he just had had enough and he then um, killed the lady he was working for and we used the same burning bed syndrome mm. and uh, it applied both ways so it was the first case that recognized that men could also be equally tormented over over many years and then one day they decide that enough is enough um so it was uh, it was at the old bailey and it you know it was a case that we um yeah took pride in the fact that we could that it was the first time it had been used for men as well as women yeah i think that's the um, you know it's the contrast of obviously like when you set up those kind of uh, when you set up the firm and you know when you want to take on cases those are the kind of you know sort of the ethical reasons as well that really comes through and shines through which allows you to um you know, put on stage, especially the fact that I think, um, especially domestic violence, you know, majority of um, women, you know, go through that ordeal mm. and torment, and it's um, most commonly is women. Um, mm. But it is also, you know, forgotten about that men do also face some of these ordeals, and it's just um, back in that day, I'm thinking, you know, these kind of conversations wouldn't have happened as they do now, um, you know, because of the social media culture and the growth of how often these kind of conversations happen now which is a positive but it's good to see that back in the 90s even you know those mm-hmm. were the kind of um, approaches that you know yourself and the firm were taking and having the opportunity to do so mm-hmm. as well um, yes we were lucky with the opportunities yeah so um, at you know time. moving into and- the um you know 2000s oh sorry to interrupt but yeah, moving to 2000 and as your mm-hmm. firm start to grow like how did you um come across you know the correct staff and you know who to hire because essentially you know you've got this um you've essentially you know planted the seed mm. and for it to grow you need the correct people around you um mm. you know you left the firm initially with just yourself and the receptionist and yes what was your mindset behind that as a businesswoman to say look now I've got this you know <laughs> baby in my hand well, how do I nurture yeah. it and grow it Mm. So I basically surrounded myself with people who are better than me in their own fields. So I, I got, um, we d- developed departments. So we had a, a matrimonial department and mm. um, the, the lady I interviewed for that, I interviewed a year after we'd actually set up. So in 95, she joined us um, and set up the, the matrimonial department and still continues to be at the firm running that department all these years later yeah my receptionist grew um should we let that pass (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
um, the receptionist grew to learning conveyancing, which I knew when I nurtured her. And she's still with me in the practice 28 years later, um, doing conveyancing and heading her own department. Um, And then we had other people, litigators who came, very good litigators. So we could set up a litigation department, immigration, uh, wills and probate. So it was always people who knew, who were good at their field. So I'd recruit them. Initially, I w- it was hit or miss. I mean, you know, I don't think we got it right every time. Mm. Um, most of the time we did. And it was the culture that we developed at Sethi Partnership, which was very much a nurturing, positive, um, uh, and family-orientated um, culture. And bearing in mind all these years, my kids were growing up where the practice was growing, um, I always saw, and I always do even now, see the eyes of my children in my staff. So mm. I don't see them as staff. I see, well, if that was my child and in, at work, what would I want someone to do to help them in their career or, or nurture them or give them you know, the, the right kind of guidance? Um, so that's how I've always viewed people I work with. I don't see them as staff. I see them as members of my family and someone else's family. So that we can grow together, and it's never there's never any animosity in how we work. It always and it should. Be, I mean, it's over the years. Obviously, you have people who who don't see the, the value or don't have the same values as you do, um, and they haven't lasted long. So there's I've always called this called this a revolving door. There's the the revolving door people, and then there's the people who actually share your values and want to stay and progress in the firm. Um, and you know as employers we need good employees as much as good employees need a good firm and a Mm. good employer it really is a mutual mutually beneficial relationship it's not one works for the other and that's it you know if if anyone adds value to my firm I would promote them even quicker Mm. than someone who possibly thinks of this as a you know I'll just pass my time here for a year and then I'll go somewhere else. Um, so you, you soon get to gut feeling on it. And after years of experience, you, within I can tell within five minutes when someone walks in for an interview, I can tell within five minutes whether they share the values that we do or mm. whether um, it's it's not going to work. Yeah. So it is experience and it's a, it's very much a gut feeling. Yeah, I guess I think, you know, over the years, you must have developed that because um, especially working in the legal industry, you just come across hundreds of people anyway in your mm. life every mm. day. And it kind of um, allows you to make that character character assessment and um, sort of figure out what personality that individual may have and their purpose in, you know, coming forward in the first place. Um, mm. I think... Yeah. Um, especially in this society at the moment and our current market, we're very fast paced. People love to move on very quickly unless you are, you know, and someone who is committed to a firm or committed to a company, it's, um, you know, very fast paced. I think um, it just kind of stems from people's um, attention span. And, you know, I think, you know, people do get, you know, I don't know if you agree or not, like, they get very bored very quickly you know and mm, it's just like mm. always chasing the next thing which has its benefits and positives because you know you kind of sign up to something and you know you're working towards a commitment but then again that you know 
basic instinct and maybe selfish purposes sort of kick mm. in like you know basic human instinct of what can I do next what can I do you know sort of thing yes. and then you find yourself on LinkedIn or Instagram and you see all these other people doing this and the other and then you instantly compare and there's always this this comparison culture that has sort of mm. arisen recently where you know you try and sort of compare yourself to other individuals who might be at a different stage in their life and you don't know what they've done to get mm. to that stage but mm-hmm. you know and then you always confirm but yeah so it's interesting I start from an employer's perspective the fact that you can read when an employee comes in or someone comes in for an interview what they're actually you know chasing after whether they're going to stay committed to your firm yeah. or whether it's yeah. you know for personal gain you know how long can you hang on to that person before they move on to the next thing mm-hmm. and you see the comparison thing it's all very well and it's easy to say but everyone's on a different journey so whether your journey is here or someone else is there, you'll never be the same as that person because, you know, it's just a different journey. So yeah. I, I try not to compare myself or the firm with any other firm because there yeah. is no other firm who's had the journey I've had or exactly, a other yeah. person. And, you know, there was a time, like you say, I, was, I too was chasing the next best thing. So whilst we had the SEPI partnership solicitors in um, East Coast, we also, I then opened up an estate agency um, in, to, in to, uh, no, 1999 in um, Harrow, which was called the SEPI Property Centre, which is basically a one-stop shop. So it was an estate agency. Mm. I had uh, two lawyers there. We had, a, uh, we had a lettings department and we had a mortgage broker. So four people all under the same roof offering a bespoke uh, one-stop shop service um and this was something that the law society were really promoting at the time you know one-stop shops it's hmm. it's client fo- focused so i i set this up and it was one of the f- first few um one-stop shops for property um at that time so that was set up and then and then there was the uh, an office i set up in in wembley which was just an immigration office so there was a lot of asylum seekers coming from Afghanistan um, during this period in 2000. Mm. And we had 16 lawyers um, based in our Wembley office, basically just processing um, the immigration claims for, for people coming into the country. I mean, a lot of political asylum matters. And this was all legally aided. Um, and it was just so busy. So I was trying to run the immigration office trying to run a one-stop shop in mm. uh, in harrow and then we had our own office which is our, our bread and butter really our stable office um in east coast at the same time um and i remember thinking gosh you know my kids were i think 12 and 8 at the time and i thought how how long can i carry on doing mm. this for um but it it was all because, like you say, chasing the next thing. I just thought, well, I've got a law firm. It's, I can run it with my eyes closed. I'm sure I can do more than this. Um, and so we built um, built a really good business. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, what happened a few years later was that when Tony Blair was in power, um, he decided that uh, the legal aid fund needed to be cut. So they cut the legal aid for asylum seekers, which mm. meant that you know, we that trade that that uh, those clients that 
department um, had to also be pinned down and um, and amalgamated into our East Coast office. Mm. So that was a journey in itself, you know, the whole immigration department, the immigration status of people. I mean, it's been up and down throughout. There's never yeah. been a stable time. I think it's it's good to see that. I think, like, first of all, the thing you said about how, um, you know, everyone's on a different journey. And mm. it would be, you know, boring if you know we just wanted to try and get to the same place as someone else because they've already done that. Why aren't we doing something else or thinking outside the box too, you know? And, mm. you know, I think each journey has heard also, like, you know, the Blair's um, initiative to cut the legal aid and stuff. That's always going to be, you know, for in- instance, in your setup, you have this, you know, one-stop shop going on with the immigration advice and for all of a sudden to, you know, for a hurdle to be placed there. And I think it just keeps you on the move and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what's the best next option? What can I do mm. to grow my business? Um, so, like, you know, Obviously, you've said, you know, based on you know, your accolades, you know, so you've, um, you know, ticked off lawyers, ticked off businesswomen, and, you know, also your book, you know, A Woman's Guide to Having It All Now, which made you an author, and, you know, also a mum of two, like, I just wanted to ask about, you know, your work-life balance, and, you know, how, like, how do you find the time to relax, you know, what is, like, your outside of work hobbies, and what do you do, because, I mean, I'm only... 24 and you know working eight to five um you know monday to friday some days i'm just like knackered and here you are (laughs) doing all four of these things so what's your tips to get that you know work-life balance and you know finding time for yourself Mm, so like you have you know when you have a client and you say okay we'll put it uh we'll make an appointment with you on whatever day (laughs) yeah I, i make that appointment with myself and okay. I make it, yeah. So it goes in my diary on a Tuesday morning. I take the morning off um, to do what, whatever, whether I go to the gym or whether I walk my dog or, you know, just time to take stock um, of things. So Tuesday morning is date with, date with myself, <laughs> a diary date. And that helps in just giving you space and time to work things out that you, that you otherwise once you're in the office, I mean, nothing, it just, nothing will ever get done. It's just so quick you know, uh, we have a very busy office. We have over mm-hmm. 1,200 clients a year. So times that by 28 years that we've been trading, we've got almost 30,000 clients mm-hmm. um, over a period of time. And inevitably someone needs your attention at some point your staff need their need attention so i have an open door open door policy at the office so people come and go so there's never any time to actually sit and do anything that needs concentration so you need to have that time in your diary where you know you're going to do it mm-hmm. uh sundays is another day which is called my pajama day so uh, it's a no to any social invites it's a no to anything that <laughs> that requires any amount of energy so and it's a good way of restocking really um so yeah i I, t- I try and have my downtime to, in order to not you know totally burn out and the good thing is in the last year uh, both my kids are now married um so my son got married three years ago and um, lives in london and my daughter just got married in december and it it's now free time you know all that Mm. energy and that time that was spent in nurturing and bringing them up is now basically free time again 
so there's plenty of time to do other things yeah no so i think that's um a key note to take just um putting aside time for yourself i think mm. um especially in this day and age it's so easy to be caught up in that you know work environment and um trying to find an escape from it sometimes can be difficult especially as you go higher up the chain as well and from mm. your position because you know you've, you've built this Sefi partnership up and for you to sort of pull yourself away from that and you know leaving it in the capable hands of others which you know you've mm. got there you've got there now that you know you've reached that stage where you're able to do that but what would you say keeps you know driving you forward because you know you have achieved so much you know in your career um with where you are and um have you ever thought about, you know, and now you said that, you know, your um, kids have got married now and, you know, it's all. So, so have you ever thought about, you know, when can I put my feet up now or, you know? Yes. Yeah, no, no, very much so. So um, we're in merging, uh, we're merging our practice with another practice in Harrow. So we will be one of the largest practices there. Amazing, um, yeah. With the, yeah. With the intention then of pulling back and letting like, it's, it's, the major things such as compliance and you know dealing with uh, money laundering all of that that's mm. what takes up a lot of the time um so it'd be great to have you know um, join forces and then um divide that kind of time and that labor with another firm so that's the idea and then moving forward i mean there's still so much to be done i find you know mm. so i've never felt that i've got gone to the pinnacle even though i've you know, won so many awards and it's all documented and it's on my website as well. I don't personally feel I've got to where I could be. And it harkens back a bit to what you said about, you know, comparing yourself. But the only person I compare myself with is myself. Mm. You know, what, what more can I do to not to be happy because contentment is from within. And I've realized that, that chasing a dream and chasing an ambition chasing a career is external but that doesn't necessarily translate to inner happiness so now my focus is very much on what brings me happiness and joy as opposed to the career progression so it's that's and it doesn't equate i mean just because you know you run a practice for 30 odd years or are a lawyer for whatever doesn't equate to our i am successful Success mm. is a lot more than that. It's a lot more deeper than just being a senior partner of your practice. It, 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 it's, it has to be all encompassing. It has to be, you know, you have to be a good mother. You have to be a good listener. You have to be a good all-rounder to be happy. Yeah, and that's no. what my, And that's what my book was all about, having it all. It's not just about a career. It's all about, you know, being happy in spirituality in in having a good set of friends that you can rely on um being expressive creative expression is a big thing for me obviously mm. fi finance and wealth have to be there because without the foundation of having a solid financial back uh, base everything else has to be built on top of it yeah um you know and um health is another big one so when i said to you i you know, date in my diary, it's usually focused around something to do with health, whether it's yoga or just really going in, in introvert in, into your own thoughts, mm. uh, which is what I try and do and separate thoughts from your brain. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's um, key, um, especially in this day and age, um, just having that time to yourself. And um, yeah, happiness doesn't have to just come from, I think, you know, sort of the expectations in the world right now is for youngsters to, um, you know, they feel like they have to be in these certain roles, you know, and be, mm. co- be committed to reaching these certain heights. But at the end of the day, as as long as you're doing something that you're happy with doing and something that you're passionate about and something that you feel can grow, then I think that's more important than, you know, make feeling, feeling like you have to please someone else to, you know, get to certain heights or, you know, work in great long hours and, you know, mentally um, draining Burn yourself. Out. Burn out, Absolutely. exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I just don't get what this, the new culture of um, people working all hours, you know, to PwC or any firm. I mean, you know, just yeah. take that as an example. Uh, any of the law firms. I mean, you know, for trainees to be working from nine in the morning to nine at night or even later, I don't get it. I don't understand that culture because I don't think it's conducive to happiness. No. I think it's it's great for you know your career, but if you can't do your work between nine and six, I think you're you're overworked. You're doing too much, or you're just not efficient or the firm's not efficient, they, they should give you some kind of coaching on, on trying getting everything done by six o'clock so you've actually got a life after that. Anything over and above that, you're not even, function, you're not even functioning to your best capacity. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, once it gets to a certain threshold, you know, the work's getting half done. Um, mm. it's, not, it's not... Mistakes being, are made. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's not being maximised. The efforts are... I think it it just comes back to that key, you know, work smart, not hard. Um, yes, and, and get a work-life balance and leave the office at, at uh, six at the latest and and do something in the evening, which actually is the whole purpose of living, yeah, not no. living to work. And I've said this so many times on so many of my talks on when I do my book talks on having it all. Having it all means having it all, not just having a career. It mm. means have, being happy with the balance of your life and having time for other things. I mean, you know, I, I discovered, and this is all through experience, that I never had time to paint or draw. And I used to love painting and drawing, but it was something that I always thought, oh, I'll do when I retire. I'll do it, you know, when I'm on holiday. Mm. But again, it's, that's what brings me happiness when I'm painting or drawing. And why am I not doing that on a more consistent basis and why is it all put to the back burner as something you'll do on on some future date that will make me happy then? But at the moment, I have to work. I have to work. There's such a, a record that everyone has in their minds, which mm. is so, so uh, deep rooted, you know, because you hear it from other people. But if your generation, I would say, or the last 10 years anyway, prior to you coming into the profession, have been working these stupid hours uh, to the extent where, you know, young people have also given up their lives over this. You know, they've been, mm. they've been reported incidences of overwork in, in, the, um, in these circles. It can't be conducive. It's only because of working from home and COVID and all that, that people have to pull back a bit and realize that there is more to life than getting on a train every morning and going to, to the practice or going to wherever work is and coming back at night and going to sleep 
there has yeah. to be more to it and it was i think from working from home that this whole culture's now been given a bit more light a bit more mm. seriousness and i hope and i do hope the next generation take it on board and don't kill themselves over their work yeah their no. absolutely i think what we can learn from the past two years is that you know um certain events are inevitable it's unexpected especially like the pandemic you just don't know when life could turn upside down so i think mm. your main priority is to focus on what makes you happy and you know yep. what your what your passion is um and to focus on that and you know rightly so you know seek what makes at the end of the day you know what makes you happy and then puts the least amount of strain on yourself um mm. is the best way moving forward um so just to stem away from the legal professional way you know for our non-legal listeners and yeah as an inspiration to many women and you know i you know having spoken about it in your book and having it all now like what advice do you have for those who feel they may not have the opportunities of progressing in their career due to their background so at the start of the podcast we spoke about how you came from a very conservative indian background and your parents had expectations of you know going into the medical field um but and then, you know, it also arises to a problem where, you know, there's certain problems in communities where I've, you know, read before that there are specific barriers to entry to the profession for some, you know, black and Asian minority ethnic groups. Um, also females as well. It's been a struggle for them to enter certain professions. Um, you having done it all, you know, what advice would you give to those who might be disheartened, um, might be disheartened by this kind of news? Courage. They've mm. got to have the courage to be able to do it and, and just not be faced by someone behind any desk saying, no, you can't do it. Who are they to judge what you can do? Who are, who's someone behind a desk to judge what your capabilities are and what your dreams are and what your ambitions are. You're the best judge. You should be doing it. You should not take no for an answer. You should have the courage to say, actually, okay, you don't think I'm good enough in this field or this career or this job or this firm, but there are other people who do think I am. And therefore the courage to say no to these, these negative uh, remarks or these negative undertones that you're a woman or you're you're not you know the right fit for us I think is absolute rubbish you should just say no to that and move away and distance yourself from any any of those kind of conversations and move yourself towards someone and something that actually will say yes to you no one has the right to judge you so why are you letting them yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's right. I think um, what we, for you know, modern society, um, we're in a fortunate position where, you know, in comparison to where we would have found ourselves in the 70s and 60s, um, the UK in general is much more forward thinking um, and approachable. Absolutely. But and, I think, you know, if, yeah. If our generation had these issues, and I'm sure they did, but I never even gave it a minute of my, my thought you know, my thought process was never, oh, well, I'm Indian and I'm a woman and I'm, you know, whatever, whatever they could say, because I never listened to it. So I don't know what other mm. negative <laughs> you know, adjectives there might be, because I never listened to it. It was, well, I can, I know I can do it. I know I can provide jobs for people. I know I can defend people. I know I can, 
you know, run a practice successfully. So why would I listen to anyone else who says no? I, if I had, I would have been, I don't know what I would have been doing. Mm. Probably stuck in shoes somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine, exactly. I think courage, I think that's such a key word. It's, um, you know, one thing that, you know, if you are from a BAME background, you know, if you are... But that's not a negative. Absolutely, yeah. Because you're from a Bain background, first of all, you should be colorblind. I mean, I certainly am on who works for me in the firm. And and you should focus on your ability, not your your Bain um, background. It should be on your ability. Be the best best in your field. No one can say no to that. No, absolutely. I think it's um, worth saying, you know, yeah, you know, being colorblind for one, I think based on people's ability in regards to what lengths that you can achieve, there is no barrier in regards to what, you know, um, lengths you can reach, especially if you're, you know, from a background, you know, especially if you're based in the UK or the US or something, you know, you fortunately have those, can be in that position. Um, you know, there's always help at hand. That's the thing as well. I think, um, you know, but what I'm saying is not—it's not a negative. You can mm. use that as a positive. Mm. You can work in fields where actually it's a positive to be from a Bain background, and don't be a victim to it. That oh, I'm in a Bain background, so therefore I can't do certain things. That's that doesn't. Mm-hmm. That would only be true if you believed it in your head. And if you yeah. don't believe it, if you don't believe that that is a is something that deters you then then it doesn't exist therefore you go and you and you position yourself with your ability to do the job you want to do mm. focus so, on yeah. your strengths yeah so i think you know because i've obviously spoken to other you know fellow law students before law colleagues before from um you know ethnic backgrounds who've said that you know they attend events or you know law society events and stuff and they do find themselves around you know what is the typical, you know, old age lawyers of, you know, from the white male background. And they sometimes find hard to associate themselves with those kind of individuals. So what kind of advice would you have for those people, you know, entering into a realm where they can't sort of identify with someone similar to them? So, you know. Well, 30 years ago, I can tell you this, there was hardly any women lawyers, Mm. let alone Indian women or Asian women or black women. And I didn't care. It really didn't bother me. I'd go to, I'd be at uh, network events uh, for my practice. And some, often I'd be the only woman there. And the guys would be talking to each other. And then I'd find something that I can relate to them. Mm. And all of a sudden, I'd find the, the topic of conversation would turn to what I have to bring to the table. Um, and there was once, I, I remember going to court and... Um, it's all all men all you know the the magistrates were men the the jailers were men the prosecutor was uh, was a man and i was the only woman in the court and Mm. i remembered the magistrate sitting there saying oh mrs seti it's so good when you walk into court because you bring glamour into the court and i thought well thank you i don't know how to take that (laughs) you know you bring glamour because you're a woman or you bring bring glamour because you know it's it's breaking the the whole ethos that there's only men in in the court and you know Mm. 30 years ago let me tell you we weren't even allowed to wear trousers as women we were Mm. to wear skirts or dresses oh wow yeah you know in my lifetime so 
the fact that now, 30 years, we're still having this conversation, is, it can't be right. We have to find, we, we are, are here, we're, we've been educated in this country, therefore what is different with our conversation than any white male person in a, in a room who's also been educated in this country? You know, we can find common ground, so it's not like we're talking different languages. We're all yeah. speaking English. We're all confident. We're all, you know, know what we're talking about. We're not you know, on different planets and talking about different uh, careers. So I'm sure there's something that you can find mutually um, beneficial to talk about in mm. these environments and don't feel that, oh, we've got this cultural difference. There is no cultural difference unless you make a cultural difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, we, and, and as Bain people... So, yeah, essentially courage is what you know the main topic is in regards yes. to fighting against any social norms or anything like that because at the end of the day regardless of color regardless of race or gender we are all progressing to you know attain that same ambition and mm. you know there are times when you may feel like you know oh am i being held back due to my certain circumstances regarding you know because i'm because i'm a woman or because i'm but from a background but then you know that's like how, you did said, Rish- courage, how, exactly. did Rish- how did Rishi Sonic do so well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, it's just, um, yeah, it's sort of reaching those, you know, heights. You know, you can't be held back by, you know, your. Mm. And you can't have a victim mentality that it's because I'm yeah. this, you know, and that's a victim mentality. It should be a winner's mentality that actually I'm so good that I'm going to get this job because of my ability. And like yeah, no. Bob, like Bob Marley said, until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes, that's how we should be looking at our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think those words are spot on. And um, um, just you know, speaking of inspirational characters like Bob Marley, the two, um, who has been your inspiration? And do you have any recommendations for students on where they can seek inspiration from? You know, in such well, in I, I agree. Yeah, I grew up with Bob Marley, so he was my inspiration. But I also, um, I would also say that it's good to get some kind of coach. And there's so many coaches now, especially online, and everyone professes to be the best coach there is. But I used to follow um, Tony Robbins. Um, have you heard of Tony Robbins? He's, uh, uh, he's familiar, an American. Yeah, so he's an American motivational speaker. And I found that whenever I felt a bit of a dip in my enthusiasm and in my ambition, um, I would listen to his, uh, well, I'd actually go physically to when he was in London and he'd do these um, motivational talks in Excel and in the O2 uh, and also in Wembley. Um, But now you can access everything online. So I found him to be extremely useful in uh, just in motivating, not not in any particular way, but just in life generally. Um, through him, I decided one day after I went on one of his seminars, it was a th- three-day long seminar, um, I'd become a fitness instructor. Mm. So I gave myself a sabbatical of six months from the office and went off to do a YMCA course in becoming a fitness instructor. Um, and then, you know, did that for six months and then the office called me back again and I had to carry on um, working full time. So that it's, if there's anything, any one person, if you could say it was probably these talks 
that you can access anywhere so it would be worth giving that yeah. a go I think, yeah definitely i think we'll um yeah um but there were no role nice. there were no role models you see there were no other women indian women that i could actually turn to especially mm. people who had kids that they were juggling at the same time i mean luckily i had a very supportive husband um who was running his own it company so there was a lot of flexibility and he's now decided that that's he's had enough of it and become a, a chef so he's opened up his own business called gully gully foods so at the age of 60 i mean he's great it's a great inspiration for someone mm. who changes their career at the age of 60 and starts doing what they actually were born to do which was be, be a chef mm. um, and gully's now really taken off and i see that and i think well i'm sure there's another calling for me away from the legal world as well yeah no i, I think that's very inspirational i think from going from it to chef to you know gully taking mm. off um no, I think um, we should we should have talks after the podcast for Gully to be a sponsor of uh, just so you'd like to know podcast and yes. see where I go. <laughs> I think that'd be very interesting. But um, no, I think um, you coming on today and you know, sharing from what I'd say, you know, rise from you know just a an Indian girl, a naive Indian girl in Ilford to where you are now, Ritu. It's been you know completely inspirational to come on and share your story and your views as well with. Um, the youth of today who are trying to very much get into the field in what is, I would say, a very competitive field as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have, um, you know, to summarise, do you have any upcoming projects or plans for SEPI partnership, you know, moving forward, um, you know, how you want to take things with your career, you know, career-wise, you know, what's next yeah. for Um, Next for me is, it's to focus more on what I actually enjoy doing in life, which is painting and, and singing and poetry. Mm. Um, and I do a lot of Urdu poetry. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Urdu poetry. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, mm. The Urdu yeah, language in India, so. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I collate a lot of, that, uh, of poetry from there. So, yeah, my own interests are very, very much in the creative and that world. As far as SETI partnership is concerned, I think the future is the amalgamation so that we are one of the bigger firms in Harrow. And then mm. I can, can then have more people in compliance and basically assist in running the practice um, under my guidance. And, and as a consultant, I can then oversee it. So that's how I see the future, um, which I always did. I always thought, you know, 30 years of, of practice. I've been in the same office since I started in, uh, um, tw- in 1994. Mm. So same office, same room, uh, same desk. Nothing's actually changed in my world. <laughs> and so I think <laughs> now, now it's time to let other people come into that world and take over so that they too can feel the, the, the joy and the satisfaction that I've felt over these years of being there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, the key point that I took from there is the fact that you're going to take time to enjoy what you do, you know, what you like doing the most, you know, painting, mm. poetry and stuff. I think that's very key. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, listeners need to take into advice as well is, you know, it's all good and well. Your career is always going to be there. You know, work's always going to be there, you know. But at, as long as you're following something that you're ambitious about and passionate about, I think that's where the key lies because, you know, you've only got one life and it's... And uh, if if you understand Urdu, I'll just give you a couple of lines in it. 
जिंदगी एक लंबी कहानी है जिंदगी एक लंबी कहानी है लाइफ अ लॉन्ग स्टोरी जितनी गुजर जाए जितनी गुजर जाए हाउ मच मैनी ईयर्स पास बाय मौत की मेहरबानी है इफ ओनली थैंक्स टू डेथ दैट वी कैन हैव अ गुड लाइफ ंग um you know powerful female solicitors and getting more people into the legal industry um and you know seeing um how the community grows so um we'll be you know I'll be linking you know over to um social media and links as well you've got over to sessy.com is that you know yes, the best way to find that's right yeah um yeah. of course um so to all the listeners as usual you know make sure to follow the just thought you like to know podcast instagram page we're on facebook and twitter uh where I'll be linking all of the two details so once again Ritu thank you for coming on today thank you thank you so much and best of luck honestly don't let anything stop you you are unstoppable and it's all about the courage within not the people without outside your world that matters amazing thank you so much for those kind words and so until next time um stay safe stay happy and see you all later <laughs>